We've been shaped by stories our entire lives. When we were younger, they were read to us at bedtime. They come from our teachers in class and friends in hallways. We see them in our favorite movies and TV shows. We relate to them, visualize them, and share them. Jesus understood this and chose to teach through stories. We've been shaped by stories our entire lives, but the stories told by Jesus were meant to give us life. His stories were called parables. As you can see by our nice little video, we're starting up a new series on the parables, and uh, you get me this week and you get me next week as we uh, are going through a, a few of them. I think we're going to spend about maybe five or six weeks. And uh, today we're starting with probably what is my, my favorite parable out of all the parables that Jesus told, and this is the uh, story of the prodigal son. So it's one that you guys are probably familiar with, one that you've heard uh, hundreds, thousands of times, and and. A lot of the times when, when, when we focus on that story, we only focus on the first son. Uh, and, and that's good, that's important, but I want us to focus on all three characters that Jesus brings into this story. I want us to look at the prodigal son, the, the, the youngest son. I want us to look at the firstborn son or the self-righteous son. And then I want us to look at the prodigal father. Now, the word prodigal is a tricky little word because it can have two meanings. The first is the one that you're probably more familiar with. It means to be wasteful. It means to spend money recklessly or resources uh, recklessly. It means to be wasteful. But then there's a second meaning to it, which doesn't, like, it, it doesn't really seem to make sense, but it's the, the polar opposite of that. It means to give or, or to have or give something on a lavish scale. So it can point to generosity. It can point to giving gifts. It means to spare nothing. So you have one word that means almost two completely different things. And so today what we're going to see is that apart from Christ, we are the first son. Uh, if we allow ourselves to, to look at our own righteousness and our own goodness, we're the second son. And, and God is, of course, the, the good father in our lives. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read verses 11 through 32 just all at once, just so we can get a full scope of, uh, of what the story is that Jesus here is telling. So let's, let's pray together. Dear Lord, we're so thankful to be in your house today for worship. I just pray that you uh, just open your word up to us this morning and, and let the words that you want me to say be the ones that, that are, are given today. Um, and we love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so starting in, in verse 11, Jesus, he begins telling the story and he says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son had gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed the with the pots that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring in his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near the house, or near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So when Jesus tells parables, he, he always tends to say things that shock. And, and it's sometimes missed on a 21st century audience, but when he was speaking to the first century audience, he was saying things that would absolutely shock them. And so what the prodigal son here is doing, when he asks his father for his inheritance, he's not only disrespecting his father, he's also disrespecting his brother. So by, let's look at the, the brother first. By asking his father for his share of the inheritance, he's overstepping the position of the firstborn son. So typically in, in this time, the firstborn son was a prominent position. You can see this in the story of, of Jacob and Esau, how it just uh, torn apart J or Esau was at losing the position of firstborn son. And so what would happen in the, in the past was that the oldest son would get pretty much everything in the inheritance and all the other kids were left out of it. Now this was done primarily because the oldest son or the oldest child was thought of to be the one that was most capable of carrying on the family line. And so what the younger son here is doing in this story is he's asking to be put in a higher position than his older brother, and this just did not happen in an ancient culture. So you've got to think that the brother's feeling pretty beaten up about this, right? Like, he has, like he's mad. He's got a right to be upset about this. So look at it this way. Let's say uh, you, you, have, you and your younger sibling, you both have access to a lot of money, but you're not going to get it until you're 40. Well, you're 35, your younger sibling's 28, but your younger sibling gets his share of the money and you get nothing. You get told you still have to wait till you're 40. Now, this would make you kind of upset, right? You'd be wondering, well, why does he get this now? How does he have more of a right to this than I do? And yet, this is what we see happening in this story. We see this young man. He alienates himself from his brother, and he alienates himself from his father. And he is insulting his father more than we can understand. So like I said earlier, Jesus is filling his parables with all these culturally unacceptable things that, that would have shocked the earlier audience. So by asking the father for his share of his inheritance early, the prodigal son's not just asking for money. He's not just saying, Dad, I want a couple hundred bucks right now. No, what he is doing is he is basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Now we know this because typically when do you get your inheritance? It's after, after the person dies. Um, the person's still alive. He's still using those things. So what the son is saying, he's saying, Dad, give me the things that are yours now because I can't stand the thought of waiting for you to be gone for them to be mine. So what the father does is he divides the property while he's still alive. And this was 
this was unusual because usually in that time, if, if a father would sell his property, if he was to divide the property, he would keep the income for himself from the sale. The sons were, were not allowed or could not sell the land or keep the income until after the father had passed away. So basically, the father loses some of his property, he keeps none of the profits, and gives the youngest son what wasn't to be given to him until after he had already passed away. But what's amazing in these verses, too, is that we don't see the father reject the younger son's request. You know, the, the father, he could have had the son arrested, he could have had him even put to death, but instead he gives him exactly what he asks for. So I want you to kind of see this progression in the story here of what's happening, because sometimes we can miss uh, what Jesus is trying to say. And I want you to notice that at the beginning of the story, there is a passage of, or a passing of time. In verses 13 and 14, we read that the son went off into a far-off country. You know, usually when people uh, say that they went far away, they don't go one town over, right? Like, if, 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 I, if I came in and said, you would not believe the far-off journey I just had, and you'd be like, well, where'd you go? I'm like, well, I went to South Hill. You would not think that I went that far. So, I mean, maybe from here is about 15 minutes, but it's not necessarily a far-off uh, stretch. So what Jesus wants us to notice is that there is a physical distance from the Father. There's a length of time where this son is separated from the father. And so while we're looking at time, it's important for us to know that the son did not spend all of the inheritance just getting to where he was going. Other than Benji, one of the reasons why Laura and I don't go to many places is because we can't afford to get there. So there's no point in me going to Paris if I can't afford the plane ticket there or the plane ticket back, right? And so we see the son. He has enough from his father to go on this long trip to a far country and then, when we, then we read that while he is there, he wastes his money on reckless living. So when the Bible talks about reckless living, it's talking about sin. So the son, he's out there wasting his money. He's buying prostitutes. He's bringing shame on himself and on his family. He doesn't just, you know, go out and spend all the money at the casino at the airport before he hits the Vegas Strip. Like he is, if, if we can, it, it doesn't make sense. He is being strategically reckless, if that makes sense. Like the sins that he is doing, he is... It doesn't happen all at once. He's taking his time. There's, there's, there's a problem there. So he's there long enough for where he could lose everything and feel the effects of a severe famine in the land. So he spends all that he has. He has nothing to fall back on, and he's forced to take a job feeding pigs. Now, remember, to the Jewish audience, pigs were unclean. So here, here's the thing. We see the son of a very prominent and wealthy man has been brought to the same level as a pig because he's out living in the fields with them and he's begging for the food that's in there. So here's something that, that caught my eye when I was reading through this. If we, if we go back to verse 16 real quick, I want you to see uh, kind of what that's saying up there. All right, so in verse 16, it says, you know, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So here's what I kind of caught with this. We see the son who wanted everything, who was given practically everything, is now given nothing. It says that no one would even give him the pods that were given to the pigs. So this is such a fall from grace for this young man. And this life here, this is a perfect example of how sin can destroy us. We go into this sin thinking that we can do no wrong and that we are, are having the time of our lives. But every time you wake up in the morning, you're back in the pig pen. You go to bed thinking that your life is perfect, but every morning you wake up there Again, and I think this is something that is kind of missed when we look at the prodigal son, is that we, we, we look at this story, and, and, and we, it's kind of like a morality contest or something. Like, we tend to think that, that, well, I'm glad that I'm not him. 
I'm glad that I have not reached this point in my sin. But the problem is that when we look at it this way, that we have missed the fact that apart from Christ, we have already been this son. We have already squandered what the Father has given us. We have already gone out and sinned recklessly. This is our story as much as anything else. And yet, we see that God, like, like here's the thing, Jesus could have ended the parable right here. He could have, have stopped it right there, and it would have been a great lesson on, hey, uh, don't disobey your parents. Don't, don't defy a holy God. Don't sin. But that is not how the story ends. For all that rejected the gospel, this is how their story ends. There's, there's rejection. There's loneliness. There's isolation. There's the, a detachment from the Father. But Jesus does not say that that is the last point. Even though we have all ran away from our Heavenly Father, it was His Son that has brought this prodigal son home. So today, Jesus is here to bring you back into the good grace of his Father. You might think that you have fallen way too far from the Father, but if there was a single sin that you could commit that Christ was powerless to save you from, he would still be in the grave. And I think if, if, even if you look at this story, there's so much to a first century audience where you would be able to say, where they would say, well, this man is the chief of sinners. He has done this, he's done this, he's done that and that, and there's so many things in there. And I think what Jesus is showing in this parable is that, it, it, that, that he is powerful to save from any sin. He is powerful to, enough to save out of any situation. It does not matter how bad you are. What matters is how great God is. So here's another takeaway from this. We cannot hate God when it feels like our life has hit rock bottom. But we need to realize that God uses these lowest and weakest moments to bring us back to him. God is using your lowest moments, your weakest moments, to remind you that you are totally dependent on him. So notice that Jesus never tells us that the son thought about going home while things were going well for him. It's not until he's brought down to this nothingness that, that he starts to realize the mistakes that he made by disowning his father and going off into this life of sin. And I think that is exactly how God works in our lives. Instead of him just coming up to us point blank and saying, hey, you are wrong, um, and instead of that happening and, and us seeing how cruel we're being to him, he lets us discover in our own time our own mistakes and our own uh, weakness. God lets us go and see how horrible life is when we are no longer leaning on him and trusting him to bring us into his, and to bring into our lives what's best for us. So here's the thing. We don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know if you're feeling hurt or if you're feeling isolated, or if there's some sin in your life that, that is holding you back. But what I do know is that God does not bring anything into your life that is designed to keep you from seeing his goodness and his glory. So if things work together, if all things work together for our good, if we love God, then that means the thing that you're going through right now, that rock bottom that you have hit, God is going to use it for a far greater manifestation of his glory than you can imagine. So sometimes you need to be brought to the lowest of lows so that God can raise you to the highest of heights. So I think that this story, it works well for both believer and the unbeliever. Because the unbeliever, you're already in that pig pen moment. You're already like in this 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 mess because of your sin. But sometimes believers, we feel like we're there for a different reason. We, we, you know, we're depressed. We feel like we're in the pen. We're hurting. We're in the pen. We've lost a loved one. We're in the pen. Um, we don't know what God is doing right now. It's that pig pen moment. But God is using these moments for us to rediscover his goodness. He addresses our greatest need and pushes us powerfully towards him. So here's what you, you might not realize. Jesus knows, absolutely knows what is most important for you. He absolutely knows what you need in your life. Now, it's not until the son is begging with the pigs 
that he realizes what he truly needs. He realized that he sinned against his father. He realized that his life was, was good, not just for him, but for his, serv- for his father's servants. And uh, all these things he realizes after he hits rock bottom. Now, here's the thing. We cannot really see the beauty of the Father until we know the ugliness of our sin. You will never appreciate how much God has done for you until you realize how, how much you have cost Him. It's not until you realize that that you can, can embrace the, the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the cross. And so that's what we need to understand in this story, that without Christ we are dying in our filth, and that apart from the Father we accomplish nothing. And the sad fact is, is that not everyone really sees who they are or where they're at until it's too, too, too much. But lucky for us, Jesus shows us that we can come to our senses and God is faithful to forgive and not just forgive, but to extend honor and mercy beyond what we could have imagined. Now, when we hit verse 25, we get to this point where this becomes the older son's story. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's, by bringing up this other son and this attitude that he has is that he's highlighting the mindset that the Pharisees had. So, like the older son, the Pharisees would... They thought of themselves as, as the perfectly righteous religious elite. Um, and, and the thought of the younger son being forgiven would have been absolutely, you know, astounding to them because they would have read this story. They would have seen this moment where the son's in the pig pen and that is, that's where their amens would have came. They would have been like, good, that's what he deserves. That's where he's, he should be. He's sinned. Good, leave him there. But when Jesus says, but hey, wait, look at the forgiveness here. That's what blows their mind. The Pharisees knew the law of God, but their hearts were not held captive by the word of God. So they had all this knowledge, but it wasn't helping. And so they thought that the approval of man was, was greater than the approval of God. So what Jesus is doing is he's not just addressing the lost. He's addressing the self-righteous, and this is something that we can be totally guilty of as well. There's really no part in this story where, where Jesus is not talking about us. Because at, at one point in your life, you are going to be either the Son, in the pig pen, you're going to be the son that has faithfully returned to the father, or you're going to be the son that is holding all this resentment against your father as the older, as the older son. Now, here's something that I think Jesus is kind of letting in through, through the lines here of the story. I think he's showing us how he is the greater older brother in this scenario. Um, he... Where the Pharisees failed, Jesus perfected. He goes to the Father, and instead of accusing us, he intercedes for us. He served the Father perfectly, not out of desire for the gift, but because he loves the Father. So here's how I see Christ doing this. He goes to the Father, and he says, you know, Father, I brought your son back to you. He's sinned against you. He's cursed you. He's made a huge mess of his life. He's disobeyed your commands. He's devoured your property with the prostitutes of, of his sin. And because of that, he is no longer worthy to be called your son. However... I want you to know that I have paid the cost of that sin in full. Everything that he owed you, charge it to my account because he has been bought back with my blood. So unlike the older brother in this parable, Jesus longs for this return to the Father. So we have an older brother that has fully atoned for what you have done. And so John Flavel is an old Puritan preacher, and he was talking in a sermon once about this hypothetical conversation between Christ the Son and God the Father and about what should be done for, for sin, and, and for your sin and my sin. So here's what, what Flavel said. He says, Here you may suppose the father to say when driving his bargain with Christ for you. The father speaks, My son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves, and now lay open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them, or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. 
The son responds, O my father, such is my love to and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring in all their bills that I may see what they owe you. Bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hands shall you require it. I would rather choose to suffer the wrath that is theirs than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. And the father responds, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last sent. Expect no abatement. Son, if I spare them, I will not spare you. And the son responds, content father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, I am content to take it. Now here's the beauty of seeing Jesus as the older brother. Uh, we see the cost that, that this younger son has, has paid or has caused his father. And what we see Jesus as the perfect older brother doing is he goes before the father and says, I see what they have cost you. I see what they have done to you. And instead of you demanding payment from them, you can demand it from me and I will pay it in full. That is why we see Jesus as our older brother, our greater older brother, well beyond what we see here in this parable. So when we look at verses 29 and 30, we see this problem. The, the older brother, he comes and he says, uh, you know, but he answers his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So what this, the son has here, he has this mindset that a lot of inexperienced Christians have. It's also the mindset that the Pharisees had. He brings so much attention to the things that he has done that he gets angry at his father when his father doesn't reward him. Sometimes we say things like, God, I did this, I did this, I did this, 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 and this. What have you done for me? I want my reward now. I don't want to wait for it. I want physical blessing now. And we put such an emphasis on the things that we have done for God that we forget what he's already done for us. The son's telling his father, look how good I've been. The Pharisees, they had this thing too. Remember the uh, other parable where we have the tax collector and the Pharisee and they were praying. And the Pharisee is, is saying, you know, God, thank you that I am like this and not like that guy over there. But then the tax collector, he's just, he's, all he can say is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we know that it was the tax collector that was justified. This older brother, he is oblivious to the sin in his own life. He says, Dad, I have served you perfectly. I've done everything that you have said. But how is he serving him perfectly if he's only working towards the reward? It seems like he's serving his father. Because, like, he, he's doing this bitterly. It's so easy for him to think that his, God, or that his dad will never reward him. We might serve God, but in our hearts we might only be doing it for ourselves. We're working for the blessing and not for the one that will bless us. And one thing that we can kind of struggle with, and Wayne kind of mentioned this uh, a week or two ago, is being joyful when we see something good happen to someone else. Like imagine, like he said, if there was this big revival in Mecklenburg County at all these other churches, but it wasn't happening here, that sometimes uh, because of our own pride, that can make us angry. Like we want to be part of that. We want that for us. So when we see somebody that we can't stand come to Christ, sometimes that makes us, you know, pretty angry, pretty upset because we don't want to see that happen to them. And so one of the, the clearest examples that I can think of that I shared with the first service, and I don't know how well they took it, but I figured I could tell you. Um, Y'all remember when it came out that, that Kanye West became a Christian? And do you remember who was the most upset about all of that? It was not the, the secular music fans. It was the Christians. They were saying, there's no way that he could do this. Like, there's no way that, that he's good enough for this. And it's like, you miss what grace is. 
You're missing the gospel. Like, you don't realize how bad you are. And we think of Jonah. We think of how he responds to how the Ninevites repent. He was angry. He wanted them to suffer. They were, God's, they, were, he was, they were his enemies. He wanted to see them crash and burn. So when the younger brother returns home, the firstborn's not happy to see him or glad that his father has shown him the love and remorse. He was angry. He locked himself in his room. So we as Christians, we can't be bitter when we see other Christians doing well. Like Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So wouldn't it be nice if when someone that we can't stand repented of their sins and came to Christ, that we were one of the first people there to high-five them and welcome them into the family of God? Like, ideally, that's the perfect situation. But how many of us can say, yes, the person that, that is my enemy, the person I can't stand, I would be the first one there with open arms to welcome them into to God's family? That's where the struggle is, because not a lot of us, I think, can say that. We don't like to see people succeed. We want to see them fail, especially if they've hurt us. But that's not how we're supposed to live. We rejoice when the chief of sinners comes to Christ, because we know that we were just as separated from Christ as they were. We know the pain and confusion that they go through as they're, they're, they're making their way uh, into this, this Christianity. And, and so we can relate to them there. And so what we see, one last thing with the, the firstborn son, is that we see that there's this sense of entitlement. Like, a lot of times we might feel like we're entitled to something just because we want it. We think that because we're so good in our own eyes, the rest of the universe must agree and that we can have whatever our hearts desire. But when you embrace entitlement, you, once again, you miss what grace is. The firstborn son, and he's missing the point of what the father was doing, not just for the prodigal son, but for him as well. He misses the fact that he was working because the Father loved him, not for the reward that was coming. So by following Christ, we follow him because we love him, not because of the things that, or that, not because we love the things that he offers. Sometimes we're just so focused on the reward. We're so focused on the end goal that we forget who we're serving and why. The reward is Christ. That's what we're striving for. That's, that's, that's the blessing. Heaven's not heaven if Christ isn't there, Right? So the firstborn son, like we can be like him. We know that there's a reward, but we, don't get, we, we, but we don't get it just yet. So we need to keep striving after Christ, and soon the greatest reward will be in our hands. So when I think of waiting for the reward, I usually think of Abraham. And so when you look at the story of Abraham, you see the story of a man that was in pursuit of a reward, but he didn't live to see it completed or see it completely. So there's a lot of these moments in Abraham's life where he has to live purely by faith in God and not in pursuit of God's reward. So when God tells Abraham, hey, you're going to leave your family, you're going to go to the land of Canaan, uh, get moving, basically. Abraham asked him, you know, why? Where am I supposed to go? And, and God, all he says is like, I'll tell you when you get there. You just have to keep moving forward. I'll show you later. When God tells Abraham, like, hey, you're pretty old, Sarah's pretty old, but you're still going to have a kid. Abraham's like, oh, well, how's that going to be possible? And God says, well, I'll show you later. You just have to keep walking. You just go, and I'll tell you when you get there. And then, you know, there's another moment where God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his promised son, and Abraham asks him why. God says what? He says, I'll show you later. You just have to follow me. And so this is the Christian life for us. We don't always know why God does some of the things that he does, and, and we don't know why we go through some of the things that we do, but we do know this, that God will show us why later. It's not, it's not, it's not for us to know everything here and now. It's not up to us to, to have the answers to every single question. But God will make things known in his time. So 
Tim Keller, he once said that Christianity is not an adventure, it's a quest. So if you've ever read the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit books, you notice that they're pretty much two different books. The Hobbit's more of like a kid's book, and then the Lord of the Rings is a little more advanced, a little more adult, I guess you could say. And uh, basically, the Hobbit is an adventure, but the Lord of the Rings is a quest. In an adventure, you go out and then you come back. Um, And that is what we see with the Hobbit, is there and back again. And so, on an adventure, that is what we have. We have, we have Bilbo, he goes, goes out, and then once his adventure's over, he comes back to the Shire and he goes back to living his old life. But this does not happen in The Lord of the Rings. The, see, a quest is something that you choose to do. Or, or no, a quest is not something that you would choose to do. A quest is something that, that chooses you, I guess you could say. Or, so, you, like, you choose to climb Mount Everest. Mount Everest doesn't just show up in your front yard and say, hey, get on up here. See, a quest is something that you don't really return from. You either die on the way or you complete your quest and you're someone entirely new when you're done. So almost all the characters in The Lord of the Rings, they become someone entirely new at the end of the book. See, Aragorn, he becomes king. Sam becomes brave. Frodo becomes a king. Gandalf becomes Gandalf the White. And that is the Christian life. See, we don't schedule Christianity into our calendar. It changes us completely. The difference between us and the firstborn son should be that we serve because Christ made us new, not because we feel that we're entitled to the reward. So there's, there's this, these two mindsets when it comes to religion. The first is what every religion but Christianity teaches us. It teaches us, I'll obey, therefore I'll be accepted. If I work hard enough now, God will accept me later. But Christianity, it's different. The message of Christianity says, because I am already accepted by God, I am compelled by his mercy to obey. So we embrace God because he has already embraced us. And this is where we see him becoming and and being that prodigal father. It's clear that when Jesus is talking about uh, the father in this story, he's talking about our heavenly father. And so one of the aspects of God that we see in this father is that he is our prodigal God. Now, obviously, it's the second meaning and not the first, because God freely gives to us. He lavishes us with amazing blessings. The father gives so much in this story. We see him give his youngest son exactly what he asked for. He goes out of his way to give his son the inheritance early. Then at the end of the story, and here's the thing. Notice how quickly the father gives the son the inheritance. Chances are, if I had to guess, he he did not, you know, barter for a price. He, He took a price. He's getting cheated on this so that his son could have what he wanted. At the end of the story, we, we see the son return, and the father throws him this party. He rejoices that his son is back. He doesn't care about the mistakes. He has his child. He freely forgives the sons. And what I love about this story is how the prodigal son, he doesn't even get to say all that he had planned to say to his father. Because you know that he said he's going to ask for forgiveness and say, treat me like one of your servants. And the father doesn't even give him the opportunity to say that because he calls for the servants to clothe his son, to give a feast for him, to celebrate So when we come to God, he doesn't say, you know, great, I forgive you, but I'm going to remember this. When you mess up again, I'm going to bring up how I did this for you and how horrible you've been. That is not what we see with the Lord. The heavens rejoice when a lost child comes home. But then we can see how the father responds to the firstborn son. He knows that the son is upset. And instead of rebuking or just even ignoring the claims, he he encourages him and he reminds him of his own love. He says, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. So that's what Christ says to us. He says, when we are hurting, when we feel abandoned, he reminds us that not only are we with him, he is with us. All that Christ has is ours. 
His righteousness is ours. We will reign with Him. The kingdom of God is ours. Death is ours. Life is ours. All because we belong to Jesus. God freely gives Himself to His children. The God of the universe has given Himself to you. So not only does God give to us freely, He gives us the best of everything. He is the best thing that we can have. So notice the father, he tells the servant when the son comes home, he says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Now we hear the best robe and we think that he's just getting dressed up really nice and something really expensive, but there's something much deeper here that's going on that the audience would have picked up on. Typically in that time, the best robe in that household was the father's robe. So the father is giving his son the best of everything. A father in that time would always save the best things for the firstborn son. He would almost never give the best of his belongings to the younger son. So the father is clothing this runaway son with his own clothing. And in this, we see this picture of Christ because he dresses us not in our own rags, but he dresses us in his righteousness. Jesus gives us the best of everything and we give him nothing. The son gave the father nothing. It was take, 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 but... In the end, he gives love, he gives repentance, he's devoted. And that's all we can really give to Christ. And in return, he gives us everything. And this is why God is such a prodigal God. He gives us so much more than we could ever hope for. And like the Father in Luke 15, we can celebrate in the same way now that we have found hope in Jesus. We were dead, but we were alive. We were lost, but now we have been found. So here's the big question. What's today, what son are you? Where do you stand in this story? Are you the son that is has run away, that has embraced this life of sin, that has, you know, taken all that he can from his father and left? Are you the son that has discovered that, hey, my life is not where it should be? I have fallen well short of what my father has in store for me? Or are you on the other side of this where you're the older son and you just have all this bitterness in your heart? You have so much self-righteousness in your heart that, that, that you are working for reward now and not working for the Savior. I'm saying today's the day you got to find out where you're at on this. Because we're not always going to have forever. There's going to be a time where, where we can only lay in the pig pen for so long. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray that, that we realize that, that we can stop wasting our days with things that we think will make us happy. That we can embrace our prodigal God, our loving Father. And, and we can stop relying on our own self-righteousness. And, and we can run back into the arms of our loving, merciful, prodigal God. So let's pray together. Dear Lord, we are grateful for all that you have done. We're so thankful for all that you continue to do. I just pray that today's the day we start to realize that you have greater things in mind for us, that, that as much as we may hurt you, that you still love us. I just pray that we can embrace those truths that 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 you loved us before the foundation of the world. Let us run into your arms. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to stand and we're going to worship together. If you guys need some prayer, or if you want to maybe make that next step where you're saying, I'm tired of running, I'm tired of being in this far country, I want to come home to my father, let today be the day that you do that. We'd love to pray with you.